0: Welcome to Hmong Man Talk, I'm your host, Shiso Muang. On today's guest, he is the most hardcore thru-hiker ever. He has walked 45,000 miles, dehydrated, hungry, haven't showered, been chased by grizzly bears, and he lives to tell his tale. Are you looking for the latest mong inspired menswear? Well, look no further. Shiso's menswear makes suit accessories, apparels, uh, and you can find them at www.XIXOMenswear.com. Hey everyone, we are super excited to have a Hmong Nomad. Not in his nature habitat. He is in his, must be an apartment or condo or home. Um, and he is here with us to join us. Welcome LP, how's it going, man?
1: I'm doing pretty good. A little chilly on this uh, spring morning, but doing okay.
0: I've seen, I'm pretty sure you've seen a lot more older out hiking in the middle of nowhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've gone over a couple of snowy passes. Uh, I have, yep. <laughs> Before
0: we move on further, me tell us one thing we do not know about you.
1: Oh, okay. Um, you know, one thing that uh, people out in either the thru-hiking community or the monk community might not know about me is that I'm an artist. Uh, I really enjoy drawing. Um, I've spent a passion of mine for a long time since I was a little kid. And, uh, you know, I have a little notebook that I take with me often when I'm out on trail, and I'll just either draw or I'll I'll do poetry. I'm a big fan of doing haikus.
0: Awesome. Maybe you can share something you haven't seen yet.
1: Sure, of course.
0: (laughs) I mean, you are indeed the Hmong Nomad. Mm-hmm. I, In the community, have not seen anyone as hardcore as you to walk <laughs> the kind of divides. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. We just ramble on, maybe 50, probably ramble on fifteen, twenty minutes about all the trails and hikes and miles that. That's a whole lot of acc- accolade, and I applaud you for that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: To get in a little bit of detail to some of you know what you've been to. Um, you know one thing that I want to bring up is you were born in uh, in Laos in, Thailand, Mike correct?
1: Yes, I was born in uh, Napong, Thailand, which was a refugee camp in uh, nineteen seventy six
0: you were i would say a still you were just being still born and you were just lifeless, Mike. correct as in as a kid
1: yeah so like many of um, our mothers and parents you know uh when the united states pulled out of laos and vietnam um you know we were essentially turned into homeless refugees right we had a choice either to stay and to kind of work or submit essentially to you know the communist forces or we left and my father um there are older mom people listening to this uh my father is Napua Jova. And he's an elder in the Hmong community, pretty well known in uh, the military circles. So the Kitakaisi family had no chance of staying in Laos. Um, We were pretty much singled out. And so my mother, um, uh, with five kids and me uh, inside, you know, being carried in her womb, actually crossed the Mekong River, and uh, without my father's assistance, he was Uh, At the time, um, they were separated. My mom didn't even know if my father was alive or not. But I was born in uh, Napa, Thailand, it's a a refugee camp, and my parents had just come back together, and I was stillborn. Um, And my father, he, uh, you know, was uh, really distraught, he uh, was a a practicing uh, nurse, and so he actually tried to do medical stuff that didn't work, and then went around and talked to all the Buddhists um, that were near the camp and asked them to pray for me. And I don't know what they did, but something must have happened, and I came back to life.
2: It is indeed. You are born to walk thousands of miles. If I'm correct, is it around 45K?
1: Uh, For which trail? All of it. Oh, okay. Oh, no. So it's uh, 45,000 miles. Um, so I've uh, been hiking for a long time since the mid-90s. Um, my very first through hike was on the John Muir Trail. Um, and the John Muir Trail, if uh, people in California know about this, it starts in Yosemite Valley and ends up on Mount Whitney. Um, yeah, and that, that was the first... Through hike, I, I went out and I was just a young kid. I was 19 years old, didn't really know what I was doing. Um, you know, I'd been doing a lot of reading. And uh, there's this through hiker. He's this white guy, his name is uh Ray Jardine, had written a book about through hiking. And I picked it up over the summer and read about it and um decided to hitchhike from Colorado out to California and hike the 200 at the time mile John Muir Trail. And I've just kind of been hooked ever since, and kind of just walked everywhere.
2: Having to have that first ever experience, and having to to sit down and watch a movie called Lord of the Ring, hmm. There was a time in The Hobbit where there was a Gandalf
0: walking in um, with the doors back into
2: their caves or homeland and mm. the dwarves themselves has never been returned to that very point it seemed like it, it, was, it was you who seemed to be walking into this mountain pass and just looking at like i'm
0: home I, i'm really home like it seemed like you were the dwarves can you give us your your emotion why
1: yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. I uh, uh, recently did a write up for the Continental Divide Trail uh, Coalition. Uh, it's the association that manages the CDT in the Midwest, or I guess it would be the Rocky Mountains. Um, and I wrote about that. Uh, I actually wrote about this connection um, of the doors of Erebor. Erebor is the Lonely Mountain in The Hobbit. And there's actually a scene within the movie where the leader, Thorin Oakenshield, walks through the halls of Erebor and he's like caressing the walls. And he's talking about, you know, how he remembers the feeling of the walls, the smells. And then he asks the dwarves if they remember as well. And that scene is al- always very poignant to me because, you know, as Hong, you know, we are countryless. And uh, we have been exiled from our ancestral homeland, you know, forcibly many times over, first by the Chinese, and then, you know, essentially by the communists. And, you know, that feeling of uh, being a refugee, you know, you kind of, you're kind of wandering around aimlessly. You don't really have a connection to the current uh, land that you're living in. And for Hmong people, you know, our connection to land is spiritual and it's also physical. And so that scene is very touching to me because I can imagine our parents, right, going back to Laos and literally feeling the dirt that they grew crops and, you know, raised families on. And so I think it's, you know, that scene to me is, it always makes me very emotional. (laughs) So it's interesting you bring that up. And um, I'll, uh, you know, maybe we can post it within this, Uh, post that, you know, this podcast, you know, so that people can actually uh, link out and read the article that I wrote.
2: Indeed,
0: speaking of that article and speaking of the dirt and the trees, there was one occasion um, where your dad took a small vase and he collected this dirt from the earth. And Hmm. really it was kind of, this dirt was kind of reddish uh, it had a scent to it. Um, and, and you know, and then months went by, uh, your dad sprinkled it onto the veggies in your, around, you know, where you guys are located in yep. Kansas. And he chanted in a very low voice. You might not know what he said at mm. the time. and then, But you were there
2: and he turned to you and he said, always remember, we are of the mountain.
1: Right, right. Yeah, you know, and uh, it it was a very, again, just a very um, vivid memory that I have with my father. Um, You know, I think it's interesting as Hmong men, we we have sometimes tumultuous relationships with our dads, our father figures in our lives. And I certainly had that as well, but I also had really great, um, very uh, distinct memories of my dad, like trying to educate and teach me about Hmong Wei and Hmong culture, right? (laughs) And I cherish those. Um, and in this instance, you know, my father and really my mom, you know, growing up in Kansas, you know, it's, not, it's not Laos, right? And so when my family first saw the mountains in Colorado, I mean, I have a very vivid memory of seeing mountains for the first time. It's kind of like seeing the ocean for the first time. And my father, again, like what you said, he collected some um, dirt from the San Juans in, in Colorado, the Rocky Mountains. And he did. He sprinkled it in our vegetable garden. I remember this so distinctly because I remember him doing it. And then he was calling upon our ancestors really to just bless that garden, right? The growing season for the coming year. And, you know, and, um, you know, and it was, it was just a memory that I cherish. And, you know, and, and uh, just watching my dad get that enjoyment of co- connecting and telling me that again, our surrounding in Kansas, which was a safe place for us, is still not our home. And to always remember that your home is Laos. It's in southern China. We are Hmong. We are of the mountains.
0: Speaking of mountains, Kansas definitely don't have that.
2: <laughs> no.
0: As no. a kid, you went to Colorado because your, your, your cousins to live there and on top of that you were guys were there quite often for guys mm-hmm. or having family members of camping you know, do there and that was your very experience as a family and then you started to to really fall in love with that and and being in the mountains of in the, the Rockies did you share your experience of your your first ever with your mom and dad in Colorado what was your take on that
1: yeah so you know each summer um like I said in the article, we we were by no means wealthy, but my parents were pretty frugal, like a lot of Hmong parents, I believe, are. And all of our extended family had relocated to Denver, Colorado. And so we, my parents made a point of it to uh, visit um, Denver each summer and to, I guess, really have that connection with our culture. Um, this might resonate with a lot of Hmong people that didn't grow up around a lot of Hmong people, you know. Um, growing up, I remember my cousins and my aunts were referred to me as momika, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think it's a little bit of a slight, but I actually took a lot of pride in that um, because it uh, it it allowed me to be the person I am today. But going back to like just Denver and visiting as a kid, my parents wanted us to maintain Mong culture. You know, they wanted us to speak the language. They wanted us to understand what community meant and so my uncles just loved to backpack and they loved to hunt and fish and so I would just tag along and like when Hmong people go backpacking and camping you know we take everyone it's all of our grandmothers all of our aunts you know our neighbors that are Hmong everyone goes and so it would be like 30 40 people up in the mountains you know all my extended family so I had really positive memories growing up. Um, And I always look forward to going to the mountains. And, you know, and my dad is a pretty thoughtful person. And so he would always explain how water worked and how water flowed from the mountains and essentially just fed the nation because, you know, without water, you can't grow anything. And so I just remember these life lessons he would give me as a child. And so it always made me feel safe up in the mountains. I've never been scared you know, um, to to explore. Um, and uh, that's really why I say that the mountains really are my home. I feel at most spiritual happiness when I'm in the mountains and I feel very peaceful when I'm up there.
2: You met your uncle and being in Colorado uh, when you are a lot younger, this was your first
0: encounter ever with a ranger random- white bearded man oh, yeah. he felt like who knows what you didn't yeah. know it at the time but he was a backpacker you were just like kind of curious like who is this guy and why is my uncle volunteering to take him to town can you tell us what happened there
1: yeah sure so um just to kind of clarify that experience for people that aren't familiar with what through hikers are and even back then, it wasn't even called thru-hiking. They, they basically just were hiking through. And then, you know, the term has kind of evolved to thru-hiking to shorten it. <laughs> but um, we were camped in the San Juans near what at the time was the Colorado Trail and also the Continental Divide Trail. They, they're the same trail through that section of the Rockies. And uh, this guy had been walking from campsite to campsite trying to get a hitch into town. And the reason why he was doing that is because when you're through hiking, so you're hiking through a trail, a long trail, you have to hitchhike or get a ride into town to resupply, to get supplies for food. Sometimes you just go in there to, you know, take a shower, um, you know, go in and, you know, get calories because you're out there hiking and backpacking and walking usually about 25 to 40 miles a day. So you're burning all these calories. And so this guy needed to get to town and he was just asking everyone. We had no idea. Well, I I certainly didn't. I just thought he was this kind of homeless person, right? Or just this weirdo (laughs) because he had this white beard, but he, he was just like really rough looking and, um, this huge frame backpack with all this stuff hanging from there and, you know, and all his like pots and pans were like, you know, jangling and making all this noise. And, It was such a vivid memory for me because, you know, I was like, what is this? You know, I I was accustomed to backpacking and hiking, driving up to the mountains. But by this guy's account, he basically said he had walked. I don't think he told us that he had walked from the Mexican border, but he said he had been out there for over a month and a half, two months. And so I was like, well, wow, I want to I want to go into town and kind of hear this story, you know. And, uh, you know, I I don't remember a lot from the conversation, but I do remember the smell (laughs) because you you accumulate a lot of dirt and just like sweat. You can't really wash your clothes when you're out in the mountains. And so he smelled horrible. And, you know, today when I'm backpacking and through hiking, I smell exactly the same.
0: Like a nostalgic feeling, if you were to ever approach somebody right in the woods and a- kind of kindly ask them if, hey, can you take me to town? Possibly, I think you have a much better chance if you're dressed in like a bullish orange cape, a robe, and they're <laughs> like, oh, we get it, we get it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah.
0: But, you know, jokes aside, you know, besides having that experience in Colorado, and now you first. Ever experienced on a John Muir Trail? Yeah, um, mm. was your first ever. Can you tell us your first ever experience? Uh, what age were you? And, and and things you know now, things you didn't know, you did wrong.
1: Oh sure. So on the John Muir Trail, um, and you know, and I, I was just this very uh, this kid with his head up in the clouds, very idealistic, and I still am today. There's still a part of me that is that person. I don't think you ever really change. Forget um, or bad. But I, I had this vision of living this very specific lifestyle. Um, and I don't know if the listeners are really familiar, but um, there's a whole counterculture kind of way of living and philosophy that was really put out by the beatniks. And... Um, and yeah, and I think if, if you don't mind, I'll just tell the story really quickly because it, it, it goes right into what you're asking. So when I was uh, 14, 15, maybe 16, I picked up this book called On the Road um, by Jack Kerouac. It's a pretty popular book now. I think people are a lot more aware of the beatniks and what they contributed to American culture, but they were really um, about uh, rejecting like standard narratives rejecting capitalism materialism so they were kind of really like this counterculture uh writers and artists that were like looking at the way american capitalism was taking over the world and were really against it and so i picked up on the road and i was just like holy cow this is what i want to do i want to hitchhike out west and i want to meet all these characters that jack kerouac described And so the summer I was 19, I was working at a a camp up in Chile, or excuse me, up at Chile, Colorado Camps is the name of the camp, up by an SS park. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to hitchhike out and hike the John Muir Trail. This is going to be what I want to do. You know, I want to go out and explore. And so that 19-year-old self who had, again, previously read Ray Jardine's book about backpacking and through hiking and how to do it. I went into those woods with the backpack that I used to carry at college. <laughs> so it's like a little Jan Sport backpack. Uh, I had a tarp and I had very minimal backpacking gear. Like some of this stuff I use is like from a kid and I was able to still hike, but I was very ultralight and very minimal- minimalistic by the standards of the mid nineties because people were still transitioning into ultra light backpacking. And I remember having conversations with um, some old timers and they're like, you're going to die. Like you don't have enough gear. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm going to be okay. You know, and you know, I'm this little like Asian kid, you know, and I was like, there's no other Brown people. Right. I'm like the only person and everyone else is white and they have all this like huge backpacks and all this really heavy gear. And, you know, and I was able to finish the trail and, the one thing that I would tell that person <laughs> a, you know, you're going to be walking a lot longer, a lot further. Uh, so don't listen to any of these yahoos. They don't know what they're talking about. Uh, but don't wear cotton socks <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I wore. And they tore my feet up, tore my feet up. <laughs> you're right. it down, Okay.
0: I remember that.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, so that was a mistake with not to wear uh, socks. Obviously you have
0: uh, hiking boots, you're probably full geared. What were you packing in your little transport at the time?
1: I had a tarp. I had my uh, childhood sleeping bag, you know. Um, I had a pad that I slept on. And then I had a lot of ramen, <laughs> you know, a lot because it's cheap. It's freeze-dried essentially, or not freeze-dried, but it's, you know, dried, all you have to do is just use a little bit of water, so it's light, you know. And I had, um, I had a knife. I don't carry that now um, because I thought I'd be fighting bears or something out there. Uh, and so, you know, just really basic backpacking gear. And so, Ray Jardine is—he's kind of—he's kind of the grandfather of uh, ultralight backpacking and through hiking. And he had already field tested all these uh, ideas he had. So instead of boots, he recommended running shoes. Well, I didn't have running shoes. I had tennis shoes, right? But I still wore these thick cotton socks. And so I got blisters, like, in the first, you know, 20, 30 miles. And I had to take care of my feet, and um, I was able to do that. But Ray really started putting forth all these ideas of going super light. Because it doesn't make sense for that kind of mileage to wear a boot um, just because you're going to tear your feet up.
2: Boots. Uh, in the long run are kind of heavier. I, I I myself even hike with running shoes. Uh so I'm with Ray
0: on that definitely for sure too. Ready to go. Yeah, just watching a few tutorials like I'm going I've never I, I never own a set of boots. I don't plan on two. Uh it's just shoes that the running shoes are way lighter. Yeah uh, to wear. Uh, and I always prefer shoes uh, as far as running I always prefer to be very, very snug. Uh, due yeah. blister comes cause you have a loose, you have, it's, it's good. Your foot's going to run back in front, which causes blister. So I always wear really, really snug running shoes versus my casual. But and, anyhow, um, you, you know, your first experience, John Mayer, let's, let's talk about your longest, biggest hike. Is that the continental? Is that, am I correct?
1: No. So the longest hike I've done, it's called the Eastern continental trail. And that trail is an amalgamation, so it's a combination of multiple long-distance trails, and it starts in Key West. So this is East Coast hiking now. starts in Key West and ends on Belle Island, Newfoundland, up in Canada, and it's roughly 6,000 miles. I think when I went back to look at the mileage, it was actually about 6,200 miles because I did a lot of side trails. And so when I say it's amalgamation, it's a combination of the Florida Trail, the Appalachian Trail, the Benton Trail. And then when you get north of Katahdin, Katahdin, Maine, is the end of the Appalachian Trail. And that's the beginning of the International Appalachian Trail. And so that takes you through the Maritimes of Canada. So that's like New Brunswick, Quebec, um, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia. And then eventually you get up onto Newfoundland, which is an island. So you have to do a lot of ferry. So that's the longest hike I've done. Um, and I've actually done it twice now. The first time I did it was 2010. And uh, then I did a 10 year anniversary hike in uh, 2020 um, and re the trail. And so it's a, it's a long walk and you have to do a lot of road walking. So you're literally walking on the side of the highway which always has very interesting interactions with locals in particularly when you are a Brown person hiking in the South.
0: <laughs> do tell, do tell. Maybe cops might come see you. I'm like, are you homeless person? or you're not supposed to be hiking in the, in the, on the highway. Do tell.
1: Yeah. So I've had, I mean, I've had some pretty harrowing experiences with locals um, from very, so I'll, I'll preface it by saying that most of my experiences out there are positive. I've had really great interactions. I'd say 99.9% of my experiences with locals and people are generally good. You know, they might not say the right thing. Um, and frankly, sometimes very racist things. Uh, but I always take it as an opportunity to educate people because um, once you kind of like sit down with someone and explain, you know, who you are, where you're from and why you're hiking through their part of the country, you know, they're curious. And so I always take it, you know, like like as an opportunity to educate about Hmong people because we are, you know, America's war heroes, essentially, you know, we saved American lives in the Vietnam War, you know, our, our, our parents and our people. And so it's something to be proud of and celebrate. I mean, Americans just don't know about Hmong people. They just have no clue. And so I always take it as an opportunity. But there are times when, you know, people don't give you that chance and you just have to make a decision in that moment to either fight or get out of there. Right. And so, um, you know, I've had some kind of unfortunate experiences with cops because they do assume. Well, first of all, in Florida, if you have a backpack on and you're walking around, everyone thinks you're homeless or itinerant. No one because you don't hike Florida, right? Even though there's a national scenic trail, the Florida Trail. But even people that live right near the trail don't know there's a trail there. So there's a lot of education around that. And I remember in 2010, I was in Moorhaven, which is a town in Florida. And I was at the Burger King and I had like five, you know, Big Macs that I was about to inhale because I was so hungry and all these French fries. And, you know, and I noticed these two cops come into the Burger King and they're looking at me. And one of them walks over and he's just like, hey, man, we're going to let you finish your meal. But then after that, we're going to drag you out of the uh, out, of, out of the county. And I was just like, for what? You know, and they're like, well, you know, we have a pretty strict no homeless uh, policy in our county because there are counties that have that, uh, believe it or not. Um, no loitering is what they usually say. But there are counties that have no. Are no um, homeless people. I mean, that's just, that's just their laws. <laughs> and so anyway, these guys, you know, these cops just like let me eat and then they drove me out and in the car ride I was explaining to them that I'm hiking the Florida Trail and they had no idea what that was even though the trail went right through the town. Things have changed now. You know, it's 10 years later when I went through Moorhaven this time, no problems.
0: So you're saying you were hiking in the mid-80s?
1: No, no, no. This was the mid-90s, uh, but this, was t- this trail was uh, in 2010, so it's been
2: about 11 years now. That's one heck of experience of hiking that trail. Um,
0: Can you, you tell us about your hiking for the Continental then?
1: Yeah, sure. So, well, so I've done the Continental Divide Trail twice now. Um, And then this summer I'm going out there on the third, it's a third hike. Um, So what I'm kind of essentially working on, it's called a triple crown, but I'm also doing a triple, triple crown. So I'm hiking all three of the long distance through hikes in North America. So that consists of the Pacific Crest Trail, Continental Divide Trail, and then the Appalachian Trail. But I'm hiking them three times each. And I've done the PCT three times, the CDT twice, And then the AT, which is part of my ECT hike, twice. So I just need two more hikes, right? And so, uh, I mean, the CDT is probably my favorite long trail. um, Just because of, I think, growing up and visiting those mountains, I know them so well. So every time I get to Colorado, I feel like I'm coming back home um, because I essentially am. You know, you've, you've got to cross a couple of deserts in New Mexico, there's the Sonora Desert. That's a little bit rough hiking if you've never done that. Desert hiking is a little different than just, you know, driving up and getting to a vista and looking around. <laughs> you know, it's it's like you're, you're hauling like, you know, gallons of water, right, to survive. And then um, I will say this about the CDT, probably the most remote of the three long trails. So navigation is important. You've got to be able to self-rescue some of the passes in Colorado. Um, you have to understand avalanche risk and how to avoid them. And you've gotta make good decisions when you're out there. Um, you know, if a pass is impassable because of avalanche rants, then you roadwalk around the pass. And some people might say, then you aren't hiking a pure trail anymore, but as long as I connect all my footprints from Mexico to Canada, I'm cool with it.
2: With all this hiking experience, I'm gonna dig down a little more. Uh, Do We need a passport. Do we need a knife when
0: we hike? Do we need this shoe? Do we need this? Give us some some equipment that will go for starter, I would say, starter.
1: Yeah, so um, one thing I always recommend to new backpackers uh, through hikers, Go as light as possible um, and focus on your big three. So the big three are your backpack, your sleeping bag, and then finally your tent. And so try to lower the weight on those three and then build your gear set around that. Um, Ultra light. So, So with that said, I would also caution against going too light. And through hiking, there is a term called stupid light. I mean, you could go out there completely naked with no gear and hike, you know, 100 miles, right? But you might die <laughs> being exposed to the weather, right? There is, you know, being too minimalistic can be an issue. And so everyone's different. Everyone sleeps in a different capacity in terms of like how they uh interact with like the, the weather around them so like i'm a very warm sleeper so i can get away with a very light sleeping pad and a very light sleeping bag and then my tent can be either a tarp or a very very ultra light tent so it's really about knowing and understanding your body and how your body reacts to different uh temperatures and environments. And so you got to do a little bit of testing, right, field testing. Um, And so those are the big three. I always recommend go as light as possible um, and then build up around there. And and one thing I would also like to say, um, we were talking about it earlier. So boots are, people do wear boots. And if you have ankle issues, a boot is generally a little bit better for you because it gives you a little bit more support. If you're out there doing what I'm doing or other backpackers or through hikers, these long, long, long distance hikes, um, a running shoe or a really good trail running shoe is the way to go, just because, to your point, blisters, you know, the movement, you know, you, boots aren't built to do 25 plus miles a day day after day. They, they just aren't, you know, they're designed for ankle support for probably 15 miles and less.
0: Thanks For sharing that, we'll keep that in mind, not be ultra light
2: and not do ultra heavy, but really take this key point in consideration for my next big hike. Right on, you know, with
0: wow, well, it's I can't believe it's that many more miles to come for you to hike because you're on hiking pretty soon here, too. And I'm glad to catch you. But have you been to a, a, another country like, yeah. Exact- such as
1: so Canada obviously is another country and that's oh, yeah. where I've done yeah not not an Asian country like Southeast Asia but the Himala- Himalaya low route it goes to the Himalayas which technically I guess is an Asian country but it basically connects all of the base camps to all the major peaks in the Himalayas and I've done 600 miles of that which was amazing And um, I have done a little bit of hiking in Patagonia as well. Nothing that's long distance. One thing that um, people will, well, now it's different. Um, Through hiking is a very North America thing. The trail systems are built and, you know, there's a community that's built up around it and a trail support that's built up around it. That's not the case around the world. You, You hike in Africa or in the Southeast Asia or somewhere, you can get in a lot of trouble really quick if you don't understand like authentic wilderness skills, right? You know, I mean, there are, there are actual animals that will hunt you and eat you. Um, here in America, yes, but there are strategies, you know, to kind of get around that.
0: Speaking of, have you been encountered by a bear then?
1: Oh yeah, I've, I've had multiple bear encounters, uh, black bear, uh, grizzly bear, and I've also, you know, the ECT walks in polar bear, um territory as well northern newfoundland gets uh polar bears and uh you know i've i've had some pretty harrowing bear experiences grizzly bears have charged me before you just got to keep really calm have your bear spray ready um when i was hiking the great divide trail up in canada it's the canadian rockies i got in between these two dominant polar or not polar bears uh, grizzly bears that were fighting and one was chasing the other and i heard them coming down the mountain so i kind of knew it was a bear i had all my you know my bear spray ready and there are these things called bear bangers they're kind of like little firecrackers so i shot one off just to let them know that i was in the area and the bear still came charging down the trail right towards me but they were fighting so they were much more interested in each other than me and they just ran past me but i was so scared I hiked so fast out of there and I hung my food like probably a half a mile from my campsite that night. I was probably the most scared I've ever been for sure.
0: Good. You think very smart of that hanging your food. That's because that's an attract food. I mean, eating sort of sweet, of course, it's going to attract the food during the morning or the late night because uh, they can smell it from miles away.
1: Oh, you in, in grizzly country, you absolutely have to hang your food. Um, or you can use an ursac, which is a—it's uh, supposed to be indestructible to bears, but I've seen them get, get into them. Uh, but you have to have very good uh, bear camp hygiene. You can't leave anything out. You can't leave things that are smelling in your pocket like a Snickers. You know, you've got to hang your food. Um, uh, check out the PCT uh, bear hang technique. It's uh, pretty simple. Go online, YouTube. Um, it's a pretty easy way to hang your food where a bear can't get it. And then, you know, they do make uh, bear canisters, um, which are pretty popular up in the uh, Rocky Mountains and then also the John Muir Trail. Um, so it's just like a big plastic canister that you put all your food in. And then you have to put it a certain distance away from your camp. Usually, I think it's 50 yards or more.
0: That was just two males being aggressive. I could imagine if it was a female with a cub, She's probably four times 10x more aggressive for, for the kill than two male. Am I right?
1: For sure. I mean, mother bears are the most dangerous animals out there because most of the time when humans and uh, bears come into contact, it's because we walk up on them by accident. You know, they're either feeding on a carcass or they're protecting their young. And so you're absolutely right. The fem- a female grizzly bear is probably the most dangerous North America – uh, uh ma- large mammal and um so that's you know i mean people recommend that you hike in a group in grizzly bear countries and i certainly try to i'm uh mostly a uh solo hiker i like to hike by myself uh but in grizzly country i will partner up when i'm doing a long trail uh just because you know i don't want to get mauled and um and i like hiking and i like all my limbs so
2: <laughs> any uh
0: uh, any, any encounters with wolf?
1: You know, I have never seen a wolf out. In, so there, are uh, there are a couple of animals I still have not seen a cougar and a wolf. Uh, I've never seen a, a polar bear. Um, and, and those are kind of the, the large predators I kind of like to to see. And, um, I've seen everything else, you know, alligators all the way to grizzly bears. So seem like some
2: great encounters, but it is part of nature, and you should know that as a hiker. Yeah. You stay away and just enjoy
0: the view. Uh, man, LP, it's been one heck of an experience. I feel like I'm hiking and talking to you right now.
1: <laughs> well, maybe someday we'll do some trails. You never know.
0: You don't say. Yeah. Man, I I am definitely a – I do work out every day, and I walk and hike, but not to your extent, but, man, you just having the sound of you Talk about it because, um, you know, I could just imagine some, there's some stress days that you go through and being right now, we're, you know, um,
2: a situation with AAPI, you know, I could just imagine there's some days you could take a really deep breath. Mm. And you just feel like, you know, I'm home because I'm
0: just hiking in the middle of nowhere. For you I make the
2: assumption that y- your skyscraper is a landscape of mountain. Mm. And your home is maybe a trailer home, but your living room is the world to see. Sure. And that's how I look at you, you know, cuz I the more I get older, I got think about that like you no
0: know, I might want to just a small 16 a square foot home. But when I open the door in front of me, it's just a huge living room of the mountains in front of me. So that's how I imagine you LP. Uh,
1: that's uh, Milo. I don't know if you can hear him barking there. He's my friend's dog. But well I mean you're right. I I, I have a new view every day when I'm through hiking, right? And I always say it's the best view <laughs> because you know my tent uh it has
2: the best view. You know, LP, thank you so much for the, all the advice. And I can't thank you for your time having this chat.
0: Um, I've seen you have a lot for API. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, so
1: um, there's been quite a reckoning, right, um, since George Floyd was murdered last year. Uh, a social reckoning within america but then also globally and um the trail is not immune from that and so as a brown person as a BIPOC, and as mong aapi um you know my uh lived experience of walking in the woods is not an isolating experience you actually come into contact with a lot of people and we were talking about some of the experiences on the florida trail but You know, when you're through hiking, you aren't existing in this bubble, right? People are interacting with you. and You're coming into contact with people that might not have the best intentions. Um, And I'll just be very explicit. You might come into contact with racist people that are going to prejudge you. And so uh, the Stop AAPI Hate Movement, the Stop AAPI Hate Movement, again, I'm just going to repeat that is really bringing awareness to all of the xenophobia and violence that the Asian American and Pacific Islander community has experienced because of, um, not to get political, but, you know, the last administration was pretty reckless in describing and connecting the pandemic to APIs or blaming us essentially. And, you know, I think Americans as a whole The good side of me or the the idealistic side of me wants to think that we're a good nation, that we aren't racist, but there are racist people out there. And they have taken the language from the past administration to really use that as justification to hurt us. And so as a brown person, as a Hmong person, as an Asian going out into the community, I wanna take up space. And challenge these perspectives and viewpoints and have a conversation. Like I'm not a virus, you know, talk to me. You know, I'll explain to you who the Hmong are. You know, did you know that my father rescued Hmong people or excuse me, rescued Americans in the 70s? That my people sheltered warriors, your your army that you came over to Laos. You know, what I mean, we we need to have that dialogue and that's part of the reason why I'm raising money. Um, I'm fundraising for uh, the California Affirmative for Action Fund. It's a uh, uh, it's the co-founding organization for Stop AAPI Hate, and um, you know I'm going to be out there and I'm going to be talking about home people.
2: For those who are listening, I'm going to link that in the show notes as well at the website. You know, LP, I can't thank you for your time again. You know, sure. Does it mean to be a mole man? Well, um, you know, that's a really loaded question. I think um, I I will. So I so I
1: am a diversity and equity advocate across the board, and with that, essentially, just boils down to fairness for everyone. So for me, to be a Hmong man means to be a feminist. And I am a feminist. I believe in uh, equity for women, and for our Hmong brothers, or excuse me, our mom mothers, sisters, and aunts, because at our very basic level, we all have someone of the opposite gender, a relationship, you know? It's either a mother, it's an aunt, a sister, whatever. And, you know, at our most basic, we have to advocate for equal treatment. Um, and so I think to be a Hmong man, you have to be a feminist. You have to teach your sons to be feminists because if equality is not the answer, you know, to a better society that's gonna move forward, then I don't know what it is.
0: Secondly, what would you tell the 19 year old LP about through
1: through uh, hiking? <laughs> you know what I would tell you? <laughs> about, oh, about through hiking? Well.
0: Uh, well, advice would you tell being a backpacker or a through hiker? What advice well,
1: would you tell? So one thing that, I, so kid, you know, I, we're Hmong, right? And uh, I remember being 18 and 19 and being pressured to get married <laughs> and starting a family. And so I would tell that 19-year-old kid, right, that was getting ready to go on a John Muir Trail hike, don't listen to what your aunt and uncles are telling you. Don't get married. I'm still very single forever. Uh, and, and be OK with it. Don't internalize all that, like, pressure. Because I did. I carried that. I mean, you're carrying enough when you're out in the wilderness, all your gear. You don't need to carry all that other cultural pressure. right? Just be free and be happy that's what i would tell my 19 year old self
0: lastly lp where can we find you hike with you get to know you uh yeah. your you know social media Alex etc etc
1: yeah sure so uh the easiest way is on my instagram account i uh when i'm through hiking i do uh post weekly monthly sometimes daily um Feel free to send me a message. I uh, mentor a lot of Hmong and also backpack, BIPOC uh, backpackers through my Instagram account. I'll have uh, one-on-one conversations. Um, and then also there are two Facebook groups, the Hmong Hikers and the Hmong uh, Hikers Backpackers Facebook group. Uh, I'm pretty, uh, I post in there too and reach out to people. It's just a way, another way to connect. Um, so feel free to reach, me, reach out in that, that Facebook group and I'll respond
0: again
1: appreciate your time that wraps it up man right on
0: so much okay sure well that ends our episode if you haven't yet visit our website at www.momentalk.com or find us on facebook moment talk lastly if you're listening on on us on a podcast from stitcher or spotify google play or itunes please give us an honest rating also want to give a shout out to the intro and outro at coolcookeditup.beatstar.com Check it out for the latest beats he's pushing out